Token economics, security tokens, token sales, and much more are on our hearty menu today. We're pleased to welcome Jose Macedo to the show. Jose is a partner and head of advisory at Amazix, one of the largest community management and advisory companies in the crypto space, boasting over 100 team members. And they've partnered with over 120 ICOs, raising a cumulative $1.3 billion. That is a lot of cabbage. See, we're not vegist at the show. In fact, we invite meat eaters and vegetarians alike to join us on this crypto journey for episode number 291 of the Bad Crypto Podcast. Hello, welcome to Bad Crypto. This is the new host of the show, Christopher Walken. W- welcome, everyone. <laughs> hey, hey, um, hey, that was that was oh, last week. Um, that was the last episode. Um, are you sure? Could you use a little bit more, Christopher Walken? That, that, it oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I guess I guess I'll hand it back over to Travis. Uh, have a stay bad. <laughs> I'm Joel Com, and that is not Christopher Walken. That is Travis Wright. Uh, if you haven't heard last episode, you should. It was a pretty good one. We cracked a lot of jokes on that one for show. But this one's good too. There's not as many jokes per quota per capita. You're 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 hilarious. You're like we finished recording that last one. You're like that was hilarious. I told some really funny jokes. <laughs> hey man, you know when they're good. You know when they're golden. I was like that was golden. Yeah, yeah. So, I'm like, yes, yes. It wasn't you even did. me CT, was... search, uh, searching for validation. That was just me going, oh, damn, I cracked some good ones on that one. It's like, I, I'm you're like, I'm good. I'm, I'm so good. I'm fun. bad. And as well, That's this one is, is equally fun. Well, maybe not equally fun, but equally informative. It is. Yeah, Jose's got a lot to say, and uh, we've known his team. In fact, during the ICO season, they pointed some good projects our way that we were able to interview on the show. Uh, But one of those projects was not either of our sponsors, but our sponsors are also good projects. In fact, one of them is the Divi Project. You should know by now diviproject.org and the last time that we gave a shout out to them i talked about how you can earn divi while you're doing anything including pooping and it's true it's it's a crypto app that makes it easy to earn transact store your crypto and you can install a master node with their one-click cloud installers i'm earning divi right now i set up the the uh master nodes using their installer one time and you know i'll i'll leave town for like a week because i gotta go travel somewhere and i come back and i open up my divi wallet it sinks and i'm like up oh, more divi boom just like that. They're doing some revolutionary stuff, and the team is fully committed to all kinds of cool developments. Check them out, diviproject.org, and more links about Divi in our show notes for this episode at badco.in forward slash 291. All right, and also we want to give a big shout-out to our new sponsor. We're big fans of Nasgo, Nasgo nasgo.com. Nasgo is the GoDaddy of blockchain. You can tokenize your business very easily. No coding required to create your own blockchain for your business. Now, there's a lot of influencers that are starting to use Nasgo to create their own token 
for their fans that their fans can use to interact. They're, they're, that's happening a lot in, in Southeast Asia. There's a lot of great stuff going on there. And they've developed this really easy solution for businesses and influencers to you know transition into the blockchain space. They have an easy NASGO wallet, which provides all the tools you need. And they also have the Amico, Amico, Amico wallet. I'm not sure always how to say that, but uh, you can download this Amico wallet and it's an, it's a messenger and you can, it's a wallet and you can actually send people crypto within the wallet, which is really cool. So NASGO, they have all these different uh, side chains. They have the side chains with all these different APIs and uh, you can connect a lot of cool stuff to that. So check it out. We featured that on badco.in282, uh, Amico, A-M-I-C-O dot app and nasgo.com, N-A-S-G-O dot com. Yeah, we appreciate our sponsors and be sure that you do check them out. Tell them that we sent you. That helps to support this show as well. Got a great interview for you today and we're going to kick it over to Jose, who is not Joel. Jose's on his vacation Jose. far away. Talk it out and talk it over. So many things that I want to say. I like my crypto a little bit higher. (laughs) I just want to buy Bitcoin tonight. Okay, this is torture. Sorry, people. Here's the interview. Mr. Travis Wright and myself have the opportunity to speak to a lot of different people in the industry and get a lot of different perspectives on what's happening in the crypto world. But as we talk to some of these people, they have opportunities to speak to people from even a wider swath. Isn't that a great word, swath? Do you like that, Travis? That was really good. You're really good with the words, Mr. I'm, I'm very swathy. Uh, one such person is uh, Jose Macedo. He is a partner and head of advisory at Amazix. They are one of the largest community management and advisory companies in the crypto space. They've got over 100 team members. They've partnered with over 120 ICOs, raising a cumulative of $1.3 billion. And, and these guys are able to speak to people in different areas of of crypto structure and regulation that we might not have had the opportunity. So we're going to get his perspective today. And Jose, welcome to Bad Crypto. Thank you very much for having me. Big fan of the big fan of the podcast. Yes. Well, we um, Amazix has actually brought uh, some interviews our way before from some of your clients because you guys have had a ton of them, and we appreciate that. Yeah, awesome. I mean, it's glad glad to have been able to help somehow. Maybe our audience blames you for all those ICO spotlights. <laughs> yeah, we do. We do. <laughs> we get blamed a bit for that. To be fair, maybe you can go ahead and lay the foundation a bit more than what I have uh, started with, and tell us, you know, exactly what you do. Yeah, so, so we started off like uh, as a community management agency. So there were six co-founders, and we we started off working with Bancor on on their community management. And basically, obviously, that was a big success, raised 150 million. And it just kind of snowballed from there, working with more and more ICOs. Uh, ended up working with, as you said, over 120 projects, actually more than that now, that raised a cumulative 1.3 billion. Some of the biggest in the space, you know, HDAC, uh, Bancor, BankX, WePower, GoChain, a bunch of them. And uh, we grew from- Yeah, we, we had several of those. I think uh, WePower and GoChain were on the show, but I don't like you talking about things snowballing. That you know, that makes me think that you caused the crypto winter. 
Uh, you know, yeah. can we just, you know, have popsicles and hot dogs and hamburgers and baseball instead? Yeah, a lot of people seem to think we caused it. We didn't, by the way. We didn't, did not cause it. But uh, yeah, so we started we, we started off with that. And then we, we basically slowly just added more and more services to what we could do. You know, we, we ended up having about 140 employees in, in summer of, of 2018. Since then, we, we've grown a bit smaller or rather gotten a bit smaller. Don't know how you grow smaller. Um, but yeah, we've gotten a bit smaller and, but we've added a bunch of services to what we can do. So obviously that the brand that we built with community management brought a, a load of clients our way, a lot of different types of clients as well. Um, you know, from traditional institutions, like big banks, like we're working with the biggest investment bank in Latin America on, on their security token offering, you know, we, we added a bunch of different services, a bunch of different skilled people to the team. So we started off with advisory, which was, you know, we had to build a team of analysts anyway, because as you probably remember during crazy crypto boom times, there were so many projects um, wanting to work with us and we needed a way to vet them. So we ended up building like quite a skilled analyst team that broke down over 300 projects, people like economists, computer scientists, people with backgrounds in hedge funds, private equity, um, all sorts of different backgrounds that you need to really understand crypto projects. So, you know, after a while, we realized we had a really valuable resource there. And rather than just sort of tell projects, no, uh, we can't work with you. We, we started fixing some of the problems that they had, and that's how advisory was born. So we'd fix their token economics, uh, we'd redesign their token economic model, we would do their white paper, do their pitch decks, stuff like that. And then we added sort of some very skilled people with Yepe Stockholm, who leads our legal department. So he's a former partner at several law firms and a venture capitalist at Black Swan VC, which invested in trade shifts like a, a unicorn. So he's a very skilled guy, came in to build our, our legal division. Then we added a corporate finance division to help projects sort of raise money with, and that's being led by Joachim Godet. He's like 20 year investment banker with experience at Goldman and, and HSBC and stuff like that. Um, and previously was at a crypto fund of funds, so knows the fundraising space really well. And we sort of just evolved into like a full stack kind of crypto agency that, that can, or crypto, I don't know, we see crypto consulting or crypto investment bank, however you want to call it. Probably investment bank, don't have the regulations for that, can't really call it that. But um, crypto consulting agency that, that can help projects with pretty much all aspects of, of what they need from, from going to idea to successful fundraiser to even afterwards. And now the, the final division that we're launching, which, which should be announced fairly soon, is our venture capital fund, which will sort of complete. So then we'll have four divisions, we'll have PR and marketing, advisory, tax and legal, corporate finance, and the venture capital, which will be able to invest in some of the projects that we, that we find that are promising. And that will give us a really nice sort of ecosystem that we can help all projects with everything that they do. Mm, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I've never heard that one yet. That's yeah. cool. I, gee, I um, won't, you know, I, that's, Travis, that's amazing that you even said that. Like, that might be the worst <laughs> dad joke ever <laughs> to hit bad crypto. That's Congratulations. Well, I was going to say, that's like, well, you guys must charge a hell of a lot more than we do. You guys got a venture fund and stuff now? Dang. Good job. Yeah, it's cool. It's, it's kind of, I won't say snowballed again. You um, did. Don't, don't. That's good. Because we've worked with over 200 different crypto projects and we had no venture fund anywhere near. We're, we're just trying to stay afloat in the crypto. Winter. I just want to try to make me, you know, <laughs> put the clothes on my back. Yeah, that's true. Don't get me wrong. Crypto winter was tough. I mean, crypto winter, we, we yeah, crypto winter was tough. Mm. How'd you manage with six co-founders, right? I mean, we've we chatted with Luke the most, I think. Uh, good dude over there. Shout out to Luke. Six co-founders, though? I mean, that's 
that's kind of a lot. There's a lot of challenge with that. You got a lot of ego. You got a lot of opinions. How, how do you guys manage with six different co-founders? Yeah, actually, and I, I mean, before this, I was I was an entrepreneur. I had a successful exit as well. And pretty much every business I started, I had problems with with co-founders. But at Amazix, it all just works really, really smoothly. I think I think all six are quite experienced business people um, in in several various different industries. You know, they all have at least twenty years of experience each. So I think. They sort of found their niches and, and their way to work together. Um, and it's, the, the impressive thing is it's also a fully distributed company. So at one point, we had 140 people in like 80 different countries, some, something ridiculous, all being coordinated by, by obviously these, these six co-founders that built an incredible infrastructure. And, you know, it's, it's a really cool company to, to work for. You get a lot of freedom. We obviously get to work um, remotely. So, yeah, it's, it's functioned pr- pretty well. Excellent. You have, to, you have to ask them how they, how they manage Well, it, it is difficult having a, a team that's, you know, so large with so many founders. I know just with me and Travis, I mean, we're fighting all the time just, you know, with two founders here. So now we're not. We get along well. Who wins? Most, of the, uh, most of the time we get along well. Screw right you, team. Mr. Joe Com. <laughs> Except when we don't. Okay, so you do have the opportunity to see inside the market, uh, you know, in the space a lot more than, you know, the average person, because you speak with so many people in the space. So go ahead and give us your view of, you know, what's happening in the crypto world right now, where are things going and uh, feel free to, you know, get specific. So I think obviously crypto started off with, with, with just Bitcoin and the emergence of sort of like at the beginning people didn't really believe in bitcoin um, and then people really believed in bitcoin and started thinking well you know it can't be the first one that's actually a successful one and so ethereum was launched and all the different icos and the multi-coin phase and i think what we're seeing now is sort of a, a time of consolidation and, and of actually building on top of the protocols that we already have you know for for all of 2017 and a lot of 2018 as well we saw a lot of new blockchains launch you know a new base layers launch to compete with with Ethereum and, and Bitcoin, um, because obviously they saw the, the huge valuations that those companies had and they, and they thought there was space to sort of make different trade-offs and compete there. I think what we're seeing now is, is the much more sort of interesting phase where people are actually building things on top of these protocols, you know, the infrastructure that's going to enable applications to be built that actually allow for, for global adoption. From my point of view, we're still super early. You know, I think, you know, if we, if we talk about equivalent to the internet, I think we're, we're still in 1995. Uh, you can look at various user data and stuff. It actually stacks up fairly well with the internet in 1995. So I think when people are talking about sort of adoption and applications that have real users, it, it's still a while away. But the this is the infrastructure phase. You know, this is sort of the internet ISP phase. And I think that the base layer protocols are interesting, but they are sort of, I would say, very expensive right now. There's a lot of them. There's a lot of money poured into them. And I think the the real interesting opportunities are people that are building sort of base layers within crypto to enable applications to be built. In terms, of, in terms of how I look at the industry, I sort of, I think the three main interesting narratives of crypto are obviously the sound money one, the, the Bitcoin narrative, the sort of Bitcoin standard narrative of it being a global censorship resistant store of value. Um, obviously, sovereigns can't print it and devalue it. It's like the idea of it being digital gold, you know, and, and being better than gold in pretty much every way because it's more scarce, it's more divisible, has a lower stock to flow ratio. And, and so it'll be, you know, in the Austrian economic sense, it'll, it'll be hard money. I think that's one narrative. And that, that's sort of the one that's found the most uh, narrative market fit. People really get that, including institutionals sort of get that. And, and that's the easiest one to understand. And then I think the two others you have are open finance, which is the idea 
of rebuilding the financial system on on open infrastructure and, and allowing it to be sort of borderless and 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 people from all over the world to transact and us to rebuild the financial system with these open source primitives, um, which is also getting a lot of traction, especially on Ethereum. You see the DeFi movement with Maker and stuff like that. And, and then the final one is Web3, um, which is sort of re-architecting the internet, um, eliminating. So right now the internet, obviously we are the product. Our data is the product and we don't really get paid for it. And the idea of Web3 is to re-architect the internet so that users actually own their data and they can sell it to to the people who want to take advantage of it and, and get rewarded for the economic value they create. And I, I think sort of where we are right now is that sound money has kind of been established. I think people kind of get the Bitcoin pieces, they kind of accept it. It's sort of developing into an asset class. And I think open finance is probably the next one to, to develop. And then I think Web3 will probably be last because of the scalability requirements that it needs. You know, I think open finance probably needs minim the medium scalability and then Sound money just needs belief and, and reasonable scalability. You know, Bitcoin isn't going to compete with cash. It's competing with gold. So it doesn't need to be too scalable. So what, what we're really interested in looking at is, I guess, infrastructure plays in the, in the open finance and Web3 area and also some, some infrastructure plays that are tied with, with really interesting applications for users. Um, that, that's sort of the, mo the more interesting stuff we're looking at. What is your definition of Web3.0? Um, I guess Web3.0, yeah. I would, I would say a web where users get to own their data and their, their online assets as well. Because I would say like what crypto could do to gaming is also Web 3.0. So the idea of these collectibles so that the time you invest into games um, in order to gain items, these are actually items that you can own and other games can build sort of interoperability layers with these items. So that you, if you have like a special sword in World of Warcraft or whatever, you can, some other game can then build, you know, a way for you to use that sword in another game. And you end up having this like, you know, interoperable chain of, of, of games where your assets can actually be worth um, a lot more money than they are right now. And you can actually own them and take them out of the game rather than them living in some centralized database within the game. Mm. So, and then it's the same thing with sort of social media and the Brave browser, right? It's the same idea that rather than your data just being like exploited by, by social media giants who, you know, take all your personal data and also your interactions on social media and then effectively sell that to or broker that to, to companies who want access to it, um, you can actually own it and then give permission to them to use it and, and be rewarded economically for it. So I think it's the idea of re-architecting the internet in a way that you own your identity, your data, the value you create on it, and then companies can access that, but they have to they have to sort of pay you for it. I think that's more or less how I define it. I'd love that. That sounds like a great world. What do you think about EOS Voice? Have you done much research on that yet? Yeah, I think it's really cool. I haven't I haven't looked into it too deeply. Um, but yeah, I do think it's really cool. I think, I mean, I, I, I like EOS. I, I do think the trade-offs they've made in terms of decentralization with Libra launching are going to be sort of in trouble, I think. I think sort of any any blockchain that, that has made trade-offs in, in decentralization to, to get more scalability is sort of going to be in trouble with Libra because, you know, it seems difficult. Libra sort of crushes that that trade-off space. You know, the, the only thing that really remains, if obviously if Libra executes on what they're saying, it's just a white paper right now. The only thing that really remains is a truly decentralized, permissionless, uh, censorship-resistant stuff. So, but yeah, I think it's cool. I think, think the voice is cool. Those, those Brave browser and, and some of the other stuff being done. Steam, it's really cool. So you know, what do you think about that as far as Libra is concerned? Let's say they do execute on the plan. How do you think that's going to impact the crypto space in general? And is, are we in trouble? 
Yeah, <laughs> I kind of like disagree with most people on this. I think what they're doing is way cooler, more ambitious and more like scary for crypto than most people give them credit for. Um, initially, I thought like I think like most people, this is just going to be like JPM coin, like another centralized stable coin, just a pool of money somewhere and they issue some stable coin and uh, you can use it in their ecosystem and it's cool for them. But, you know, it's, it's not really crypto. But what they actually laid out in the white paper is a much more ambitious vision. You know, first of all, the, the stable coin is is well designed. You know, it's a, a pool of, of different assets that, that back a stable coin that, that's not really pegged to any currency. It's actually like almost supranational because it's pegged to a basket of, of goods. So that's a really interesting design choice. It's quite similar to reserve uh, if you saw that, but obviously less decentralized to start with because they hold all the assets. But people have been pointing that out a lot, but I think they had to start that way. It, that they, they can decentralize once there are security tokens on the blockchain that represent these assets that are in the basket and then sort of anyone will be able to hold them. So I think that's really interesting. And then they're also launching, obviously, a world computer. I mean, basically, to, to compete with Ethereum. They have a smart contracting language, Move. So that's pretty huge. And most, I think, importantly, is that the white paper talks about this plan to move to full permissionlessness and decentralization, which I think most people have, have, have thought that's not going to be you know, th th that's just nice words. You know, they're, they're never actually going to do it. I think it's possible that, that they don't do it. But I think what's crazy is that, that they could actually do it. You know, that I think one of the things people are underestimating is the, the, the pressure that regulators put on them. You know, they're being pressured by regulators on the censorship front, on the antitrust front. And I think one of the ways to, to avoid regulatory um, liability and legal liability is not to have control, to give up control, right? And decentralization is a really good way to do that. So if they actually execute on this permissionless plan of theirs to, to run their, their blockchain permissionless eventually, then they'll basically have um, a world computer to compete with sort of AWS and, and Ethereum and all of that. They'll have obviously a stable coin, you know, so a, a supranational global currency. Um, and then they'll have Facebook, which, which has identity in it and communication. And eventually, like my, my thought was they could actually run Facebook on top of Libra. You know, so they could run it decentralized and, and, and censorship resistant and all that. Maybe open source the, the, the code for the, I mean, this is getting pretty crazy and probably unrealistic, but they could open source the, the code for the, for the censorship algorithm, put in on, on chain governance systems so people can actually vote on what happens. You know, yeah, um, Mark Zuckerberg. My play out of my butt. That's it. Yeah, exactly. Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah, that, that was my, that was my tweet. It was like, Mark Zuckerberg ends up building the four. Um, like fundamental open tenets of the internet, you know, it becomes like a yeah. Hero you're, that's that's a fantasy. You're that's not living in reality <laughs> at I mean, all. Don't you say you are hilarious? <laughs> the whole thing actually was he 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 goes from being obviously the most one of the most hated people among the millennial generation to like um, Che Guevara basically. <laughs> like he builds the four open tenets of the internet, and then the U.S. government's after him. He 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 moves to the hilltop somewhere. You know, lives in hiding, grows a beard, um, and just gets printed on T-shirt. You know, wearing black toner as well. Wow, I don't know. I would say he's probably part of the yeah, government. Fair enough, my guess. Now, have you ever gone down that rabbit hole around LifeLog? So there was a project that the NSA was creating that was essentially going to be like Facebook, where they're going to track every human's actions, what they liked, what magazines they did. It was called LifeLog, and LifeLog. They shut down LifeLog on February 4th, 2004, and Facebook, coincidentally, was created on February 4th, 2004, wow. and so they wow. shut down LifeLog, 
and then Facebook was created. So it's always been one of those interesting rabbit holes to me. Like, really? <clears throat> like, how how close are they? Because, man, it seems to me that it's much better to have a third-party company like Facebook instead of a, you know, NSA-backed LifeLog. Like, who's going to want to opt in to LifeLog? But Facebook, everybody yeah. will put in all their information there. So, and you're right. We don't own our information. Facebook owns it. They're selling our engagement online, not only on Facebook and on Instagram. You know, they're selling all that and making lots of money. They're what $300 billion company or something crazy like that. Now, just based off of, you know, content they don't create, they just created a platform. Well, now they're acting like a publisher though, and getting rid of points of view they don't like. So, that's why there's this huge opportunity for decentralized social medias to pop up to help help fix some of these problems that we're seeing. And it's, it's interesting how the in, the industry, even though since since Trump has taken office, it's interesting to see how social media has maybe devolved a bit. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. I think I think that is the most likely scenario. But as a sort of a former poker player, I always look at the world pr- probabilistically, and I think there is some chance. You know, he's obviously written about uh, about a year and a half ago about wanting to get into understanding decentralization and decentralized technology more and the, the white paper yeah while he was while they were banning a cryptocurrency yeah. ads like hey we're gonna ban crypto ads while we build our own crypto yeah. <laughs> like, really like so yeah horrible. i mean well pretty smart right <laughs> i mean from their perspective yeah and then, smart shrewd, they, they, i think yeah I, I think from their perspective they executed this probably the best they could they could have executed. I, I know I think in terms of big companies entering the space, no one has done it better than them. You know, they really did sort of execute perfectly. Now it's a question of whether they can deliver on it. And I agree with you, it's unlikely that they deliver on the full vision laid out in the white paper. Um, but th- they're in a position to be able to do so. And that to me is so crazy. You know, it's such a change of, it changes everything. So it's pretty cool. I mean, I think it's pretty cool. And I, I think we haven't seen sort of the, um, like we're still, crypto industry still in denial. I think when this becomes real is when Facebook starts like hiring top developers away from projects because that's going to happen. Mm, they've been doing that though. I mean, that's like where they've gotten to the point where they are now. Yeah. You know, I mean, they have they've, they've hired a bunch. Especially when crypto winter hit, a lot of those projects no longer had money, right? Because maybe they kept all their they kept all their uh, their raise in Ethereum. Ethereum goes from fifteen hundred down to one hundred something, right? So they not only did they just spend through in their burn rate and spend through money, but they've also lost it because they kept it in crypto yeah. and they didn't turn it into, you know, so that's crypto winter was hard for a whole lot of these projects. And so a lot of these top developers were looking for other places to go and they've landed. A lot of them have landed at Facebook. I've seen. Yeah, exactly. And I think what we still haven't seen is sort of like a really high profile hire away from like Ethereum, right? Like the Ethereum 2.0 development team. Or, or something like that, you know, then EOS core developer or, or Bitcoin core developer. I mean, I don't think that will happen, but still, it, that, that's, I think, when it gets real, when they start really hiring away top talent to build on their blockchain rather than rather than the, the, the public permissionless ones that exist now. So, you know, you, you guys do a lot of stuff over there at Amazix, and one of the things you guys do is helping companies figure out their token economics. And so when you guys are checking out companies, how do you avoid, you know, a coin? Like what, what, what are, what are the good, how do you, what do you look for when you're looking at token economics? Yeah. So I, I think, you know, a lot of people invested in the 2017 bubble thinking that these tokens were something similar to equity. You know, that if this, if this company is successful, then this token will appreciate in value because, because it's connected to the company, you know, in some sort of hand wavy, like mystical way. And what you see, you know, equity has very precise legal rights, you know, ownership rights over the company's assets, over the company's cash flows. 
which is what makes it valuable and which which is what makes its value scale as the company becomes more successful. But it's kind of like a legal creation though. And, and tokens, they don't have the same legally enforceable rights. So with a token, you actually have to look at what is this token's role within the ecosystem and, and what happens to this token's value and its role as the ecosystem grows in, in, in adoption. And I think what we saw since 2017 is that for loads of the, the main token models that were being launched, which were basically payment tokens or like medium of exchange tokens, where it would be like, I launch a marketplace for, for, for something and I say, in order to use this marketplace, you have to use my token, right? And that's my token model. What we saw is that those um, basically accrue no value whatsoever because of the velocity problem, which sounds complicated, but it's actually really simple. You know, if I have a, a, a marketplace and I'm forcing you to use my token on it, um, you're going to buy the token to use the marketplace. And then the person who gets paid, you know, the service on the marketplace, so the service provider on the marketplace is going to sell it to pay their bills. So the, the token, you know, the, the increase in demand from me buying the token in order to use the marketplace is immediately matched by an increase in supply from the person selling it in order to pay for their bills. And, you know, the market cap of anything is the amount of value stored in it. And these tokens, there's no reason for you to store any value in it. They're like working capital. You, you just buy it to, to, to use the thing and then you get rid of it when you, when you don't need it. So these tokens sort of don't accrue any value. And these are what I call like crypto commodities. So generally, I wrote a big thing uh, trying to do a taxonomy of different token models. And the way I see it is you have crypto commodities and crypto capital. Crypto capital is basically stuff that's productive, that has some sort of cash flow um, or accrue, you know, has some sort of value that, that's, that's accruing to it over time. And then crypto commodity is something that, that has no cash flow. And within crypto capital, you can sort of divide that into security tokens, which is um, obviously something that qualifies for the legal definition of a security. And generally, this means that um, it generates cash flows, but it's from the effort of others. So you, you passively hold it and, and other people, a group of people generally identifiable, generally under a legal structure, generates cash flows for you. And that's a security token. And then you also have, I think, what is the most interesting crypto token model, which is work tokens, which is a scenario in which the, the token does generate cash flows, but rather than coming from the effort of others, you actually have to provide some work to the ecosystem in order to get that value. So an example of this is, is something like Augur, right? Where, um, you know, reporters have to have to report on real world events and they have to hold Augur tokens to do so. And then they, get, they can get cash flows from that or Steam or governance tokens where, you know, you have to vote on the direction of the network and you get paid based on that. And these are all, I think, the really interesting token models because you can value them using traditional methodologies, like a, like a discounted cash flow, which is what finance people use to value stocks and other cash flow generating instruments. You can, you can value them with those, but they, they're not securities because um, you only get the cash flow if you provide the work to the network. So I think those are the most interesting kinds of token models and the ones that we generally try and design. Um, one that we really like is, is the discount token, for instance, where you stake some tokens in order to get some discount on the network. And, and that's a case in which your work is basically using the service on the network. So you're paying fees and that's your work and then you can get a discount on them. So it's basically for the company, it's like a royalty, but it's one that's only paid if you actually do the work on the network. And then on, on the crypto commodity side, so on the non-productive side, um, I, I would sort of divide them into, into cryptocurrencies. And then also like in, within cryptocurrencies, you have sort of medium of exchanges and store of values. But I think the problem with cryptocurrencies is if you're launching a new one, you need to have a really compelling, unique selling point that will allow you to actually compete with, with Bitcoin, Monero, Decred, you know, the, the big ones out there that, that have established brands, established market caps and all of that. So 
I think generally what, what, what we try and do is the, the tokens we work with, we, we generally want them to have a compelling token model. So no pure payment tokens that suffer from the velocity problem. We want the token model to be able to be valued. And ideally, we don't want to work with, with crypto commodities unless we think that they have a, a genuine chance of sort, of sort of becoming an alternative to, to Bitcoin or, or, or these types of currencies, which is very hard and a very hard bar to pass. So, well, like Badcoin, you know, clearly Badcoin is a threat to Bitcoin. Badcoin, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, yeah. 100%. Bad, Badcoin's going to take over the world. Yeah. Cool. Well, good stuff. We, we appreciate your uh, your um, your expertise here. And I'm kind of curious now as we do the crystal ball yeah. part of the interview, because you're talking to so many people, I want to know what is the vibe that you're getting? from you know clients in this space and i don't know if you like making predictions or not we're not going to hold you to it but where do you think we'll be by december 31st 2019 yeah i think i think the vibe is is significantly more bullish you know the, the most bullish I've, I've felt it since 2017 uh, definitely what i would say is i think there's a lot of sort of macro things going on that are that, that make this a really interesting time to be in crypto you know obviously we had we have sort of the highest global debt that we've ever had. You know, I think there's like 250 trillion or something in, in, in global debt. We have quantitative easing, which is literally the biggest financial experiment in history. You know, people talk about Bitcoin. Quantitative easing is the biggest financial experiment in history. You know, globally coordinated governments pumping loads of money into the economies to buy assets. You know, Travis Kling calls it universal basic income for the rich. You know, because obviously assets went up loads in prices um, from yeah, quantitative easing. Presses on, just turn them on. Is then they don't turn them off, and so. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. How much they have because the Federal Reserve Bank and these world banks and these other banks around the world, they don't they're not audited. There's not an independent company that comes in and checks them out to see how many they've printed. They just keep printing them. And it's like it amazes me when people because people don't realize that the, the, the foundation of fiat currency, most people have never even heard that term. Right. It's like yeah. you can print a hundred dollar bill for six cents like and you yeah. can loan that hundred dollar bill out nine additional times you can create a thousand dollars for six pennies who wouldn't do that all day long <laughs> exactly i'm totally with you and and that's it and so th this has led to obviously huge inequality it's led to populism um and, and i think you know th there's also the fact that obviously they tried to raise rates last year and we saw what happened uh, markets went into turmoil you know dropped a huge amount and they, they then trump bullied um, Jay Powell a bit on Twitter, and then he lowered rates again. And so, I think like Bitcoin, although it's a risk asset, its its value proposition is actually a safe haven asset, right? It's like gold being an alternative to the to the global financial system, and so it's a hedge on the global financial system. And I think right now we're at sort of peak global financial system irresponsibility, um, and and I think people are realizing that, and that's also why money is is going to Bitcoin. You know, it's no, it's sort of no uh, coincidence that the the Bitcoin bear market pretty much started when the Fed decided to to raise rates and it pretty much ended when the Fed decided to lower mm -hmm. rates. You know, it's very, very close together. Um, and obviously, like all risk assets, you know, the, 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 the interest rate is a discount rate on them. So that's natural. But I also think there's an element of people are realizing how irresponsible what's going on is, you know. And one thing I always like to, Ray Dalio is one of my favorite economists. Um, you know, he's the head of Bridgewater, one of the biggest hedge funds in the world. And he thinks right now the, the, the time that's most analogous to is the 1930s um, because we just came from a, from a big um, crash. You know, there's, there's sort of populism rising up. There's obviously this led to the Second World War. Hopefully we don't go there. But there's inequality. There, there's populism. There, there's all this going on. And 
you know, what, what happened to the price of gold in the 1930s? You know, it, it went up so much that the government had to ban private ownership of gold. And, and, and I really think that's what, why Bitcoin is finding its niche in this, in this economic environment, you know, and, and why crypto is so interesting at, the, at this point in time with, with, with the situation, um, the global macro situation. So, you know, I'm very bullish on, on crypto long term. In terms of December 1st, 2019, I don't, I don't know. You know, it's very difficult to predict in that time frame, but I, but I do think crypto as a whole will be an asset class in the multiple trillions of, of market cap within the next sort of 10 years. I mean, I have, I'm, I'm pretty certain of that. Certainly, I'm the most certain of that than I've, than I've ever been. Okay, but so, that, that's not yeah. fair. Nobody gets out of here alive. Come on, toss us a number. What do you think? <laughs> All right. Uh, what, December 1st, 2019? Yeah, 31st. Uh, 31st, 2019. Um, December 19th, uh, 2019. At, at 5.34 yeah. in the afternoon. No, end of year. All right. I'll go with um I'll go with twenty K. I think we'll 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 be we'll be at all time high, back at all time high, but at that point. Yeah. I would be okay with twenty K. I was reading some stuff last night that said that uh um actually I was listening to an audiobook. It says it takes seventeen years for a new idea to really fully get entrenched within society and we're normally we're living within past paradigms all the time. So that would say that, you know, maybe by the year twenty what 2026 2025 that you know maybe the whole world starts getting and understanding cryptocurrency because right it was founded in 2009 or actually in 2008 and started going to 2009 so maybe 2025 2026 really the world starts adopting it in a massive scale potentially but Trav, don't you think yeah. that that's an old model right there i mean because the the rate of technology uh you know in terms of development and adoption has increased. I mean, look, how long did it take for the smartphone to become, you know, adopted? Uh, it, it mm -hmm. just, you know, five, six well, years. I mean, it looks like, and all though, of a sudden, I mean, seriously, though, I mean, Bitcoin's been around now 11 years. And, you know, there's there's not more than 20% of the population that has it. Probably, I would say, less than 10% of the population has any crypto at all. Probably it's way less than that. So it's like when it gets to become a majority, you know, it's going to take probably another three to five years and that would put it on par with that particular uh statistic but who knows i mean it's fun i mean i'm glad we got in early yeah. folks <laughs> if you're listening to this show congratulations you're still early yeah no definitely still early and i think smartphones probably came in at sort of the end of the of the internet cycle you know because you, you had the internet started in the 1990s people were excited about it and it took until about 2008 2009 for some of the ideas people were talking about in, in the early 90s to actually be possible right and i think that's generally, you know, when you look at Carlotta Perez and her framework of, of, you know, how technological revolutions happen, like she's analyzed sort of all of them. I really recommend her book. She talks about how it always starts with an installation phase that ends with a crash and then sort of a deployment phase. And I actually think we're still before the big crash. You know, I, I don't think the crash has happened yet. I think um, 2017 is going to look like a blip compared to the actual um, bubble that, that, that we're setting up for um, with institutionals being in with the with more of the infrastructure being there for institutionals with some real use cases to drive the, the, the bubble. And I think after that crash, we'll see the real deployment phase and this becoming a mainstream thing, you know, similar to how companies were talking about being mobile companies in 2008. Now every company is talking about being a blockchain company. I think in, in the timeline you're talking like 10 years from now or, or nine years from now, everyone will just be a blockchain company. You won't have to talk about it. It will have pervaded a lot of different industries. Well, on that optimistic note, that's going to end in a crash, but then more optimism, 
<laughs> Jose Mazedu, yeah. thanks so much for uh, coming on today. You guys can check out what Amazix is up to at amazix.com. And of course, all the links in the show notes here. Give us some feedback. Let us know what you think. And thanks, Jose. That was an Amazix, that was an Amazix interview again. I want to say that again. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. And yeah, cheers. I don't know why you wanted to end the show before that great interview, Mr. Travis, right? I didn't, I didn't know why either. I was just, I wanted to go listen to some outfield. Yep. A little bit of trivia outfield. That was uh, your love. And they had another song that was really big from that same album. Do you remember what it was? You know, I, um, I do. There's another one that I really like from their, from their album. That was called Winning It All. That was a really great song. That was from a different album. Um, I had that other album. What is the, what is the name of it? I'm not, I don't remember. Okay, so the album was Play Deep. Okay, come on, Play Deep. Wasn't it? What wasn't it? Your was it your love? No, your yeah, love is the one you were just saying. One. Give me a hit of the song. Oh, say, say it was it was oh, uh, say, say it, it isn't so. so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Reached number eighteen yeah. on the U.S. Uh, Top 40. I duck duck owed that. I'm Casey Kasem. You're on Bad Crypto today. <laughs> I, I could never do a Casey Kasem accent. I've tried for a long time. I suck at it. You know, but that, what would be fun there is I can go to coingecko.com and uh, we're going to timestamp this for actually a little earlier in the week as we're pre recording this. But we could be like, crypto's top 40, counting them down. And number five with a bullet is Litecoin. And number four, the, the, what was the deal he did? He had like the people would call in and they do like a little story. Like I always remember like when my, when my stepdad got home, like he was normally grumpy. So I would always just go into my room and hang out and listen to the radio. And like Casey Kasem was like my, was like my babysitter for many years. And uh, I would just listen to those things and uh, heard a lot of great music, but he had so many great stories that he would tell. He was, he was amazing. Yep. Legendary. Absolutely. You know what else is legendary? Mr. Joel Com. No, no, not me. Uh, not you either, oh. although you are cool. No, our, our audience is legendary. They are. You guys, especially those who were with us from the beginning, you know, two years ago. Uh, but even if you've joined us recently, guess what? You're legendary also. You welcome to the fold of legendariness. Lots of great content coming your way, and we appreciate you. So, you know, what determines legendary? Like, are we just like blowing smoke or no? It's like you're legendary because Mr. Joel Combs says you're legendary. That's that's all you oh, need is, it, is you're, for, the, you're the you final stamp yeah. of legendary approval. I am the hander out of legendary ah. status. Wow, this is this is weird. I'm actually doing some research on Casey Kasem. He had like some mysterious death. He like he had a mysterious death of Casey Kasem. They had an episode on 48 Hours about that because, uh, yeah. There was some allegations of murder in a lawsuit, an ongoing family feud of something going on. Wow. Craziness. Did he know the Clintons? <laughs> uh, bite your tongue, Mr. Jokom. You do not want to be <laughs> Arkansas. <laughs> I'm so Arkansas. <laughs> and I just can't hide it. I got two bullet holes in the back of my head, and I just can't hide them. <laughs> oh, my gosh. If that is not proof that we are bad then i don't know what is and all i know is that we're just going to keep staying bad who's bad 
The Bad Crypto Podcast is a production of Bad Crypto, LLC. The content of the show, the videos, and the website is provided for educational, informational, and entertainment purposes only. It's not intended to be and does not constitute financial, investment, or trading advice of any kind. You shouldn't make any decisions as to finances, investing, trading, or anything else based on this information without undertaking independent due diligence and consultation with a professional financial advisor. Please understand that the trading of Bitcoins and alternative cryptocurrencies have potential risks involved. Anyone wishing to invest in any of the currencies or tokens mentioned on this podcast should first seek their own independent professional financial advisor.